We as believers understand what? That we are in a spiritual battle, that there is a war that rages. And whether or not the nations of the earth are fighting one another, there is an enemy of our soul who is fighting against the Most High God, desiring to steal his glory. There is a battle raging for the hearts and souls of men. The spiritual warfare pits the enemy of our soul against the God of the universe. Satan desires to steal glory from God and focus it on himself. Hello and welcome again to Grace Maribel Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. Please open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, Matthew 2, and I just want you to know that it's a joy to be back with you, but as always, it's a joy to know that as I go, that there are faithful men preaching and teaching the Word, those from the pulpit, Andy Smith did a wonderful job, and then from, and even in the small groups, those taking over, I just, I'm so grateful that you're a church that loves to hear the Word and a church that's constantly growing in it, raising up men who can preach and teach it. It is a, it is a tremendous blessing. Please stand. As we read Matthew chapter 2, I'm going to read the entire chapter to set us in our context because it's been several weeks. And remember, the historical context is that's where we are. That's what we're talking about. The history is very important as revealed to us in the truth of God's word. It's not incidental, as we will see, nor is the geography incidental. So I do want you to notice as, we, as I read chapter 2 where the events are taking place because all of that has to do with things that God has predicted. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time that the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way. And the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now, when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. 
Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which, had, which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Please be seated. The world is at war. No, that's not the latest headline. You missed something and now you got to run out and take care, for, take care of your family. No. It seems, I guess, watching the Olympics all week, that the world is at peace. At least many countries were all together skiing and jumping and doing all the things that we do at the Olympics. And it, it seems for a time like perhaps there is peace. And from a stand, temporal standpoint, that's a good thing. But we as believers understand what? That we are in a spiritual battle, that there is a war that rages. And whether or not the nations of the earth are fighting one another, there is an enemy of our soul who is fighting against the Most High God, desiring to steal his glory. There is a battle raging for the hearts and souls of men. The spiritual warfare pits the enemy of our soul against the God of the universe. Satan desires to steal glory from God and focus it on himself. Whereas God desires to redeem for himself a precious bride, the church, to present to his son so that he himself might receive all the glory that he so richly deserves. Because there is this battle, things will often seem dark and difficult, and we must not be discouraged or deceived by this. God has allowed the battle for a time, but he will be the victor, and all those who are in Christ will gain the victory with him. Nowhere is this spiritual struggle more evident than during the life of Christ. And it began in earnest at the time of Christ's birth. Matthew's intent is to show that even the suffering and difficulty in Jesus' life were all a part of God's predicted plan to bring about our redemption. There is war, but we do not fear the war, for we know who wins it. Now, just to remind us where we are in our text, we began in Matthew chapter 1 with the lineage of the king. Remember, Matthew is a book about the savior king. That's the simple theme, the universal theme. And we began with his lineage in chapter 1, verse 1. We found that he was the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Mary, the wife of Joseph. Then in verse 18, we moved on to the birth of the king. We saw that he was born of a virgin, that he was born according to prophecy, that he was born as Emmanuel, God with us. And then in chapter 2, we transitioned to the worship of the king. Very unusual. Instead of being worshipped by his own people, the ones to whom he came, he was worshipped by foreigners. And yet, by those foreigners, he was worshipped with joy, and he was worshipped in humble faith. And really, we were left, we were left at the, uh, when we finished out in chapter 12, or really chapter 11, there was, chapters 10 and 11, there was joy, or verses 10 and 11 of chapter 2, there was joy and there was worship. And so it seems like things are going well after a difficult start. But we need to remember and consider all of this in context. You see, Jesus is the Messiah, he is the king. He came as the virgin-born God-man, yet from the very beginning, things have been difficult. 
His adoptive father was about to divorce his mother before learning of his virgin birth. His parents were forced from their homes and livelihoods by the tyranny of a greedy Caesar eager to tax the world that he had conquered. When they arrived in their new city of residence, Mary was heavy with child and there was no suitable place found for the baby except in a lowly manger. When the new king did arrive, he was greeted by shepherds, not exactly upper-class citizens. He then languished in obscurity until a host of eastern mystics came looking for him, first stopping for a visit with the political king of the region, who immediately began plotting to kill him. The believing magi wisely worshipped him and gave him gifts, even as the religious leaders of his own people refused to come and verify if their Messiah had truly been born. Then the magi left, and things got really dicey. Let's take a look. We will see the king threatened or the threat to the king. First, Joseph flees to Egypt. And I've just simply put together kind of a a narrative outline. We're following the narrative through. Those will be the points, but we'll be seeking to understand what they mean as we work through. Why do we have this narrative? Why does Matthew present these particular things? And really, we'll see that it rotates around or revolves around prophetic fulfillment. We've already seen two of them the prophetic fulfillment that he would be, uh, his name would be called Emmanuel, that he would be the Savior, the Messiah. The other fulfillment that he would be born in Bethlehem. We'll see three more. And really those fulfillments are Matthew's proof that this is the true Messiah. It's the Old Testament testifying to the nature of who Jesus would be and is. So let's kind of follow the narrative and see how these fulfillments work themselves out. Joseph flees to Egypt, verse 13. Now when they had gone, that is the Magi, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. The first thing we see is that Joseph is warned. Now, when they had gone, the narrative is kind of packed together here. We move forward in time and then back in time, as we'll see in these verses. But it would appear from the way that these verses are written that when the, uh, after the Magi had gone, that the angel of the Lord appeared right away. This is possibly even the same night. It could be a little bit later. But remember that Bethlehem was only five miles away from Jerusalem. So Herod is waiting. The clock is ticking. He knows how long it takes to get there. He knows what the Magi were there to do. And he knows when they ought to come back. They go, they worship. This doesn't take so long. And then they come back. So he's tapping his toe, as it were, waiting for them to return. So the clock is ticking. Well, when the Magi leave, of course, they don't go back to Herod because they've been warned and so it would appear that the moment the Magi are like, a, you know, they're off the scene, they're, they're walking out of Bethlehem, Joseph goes to sleep, and when he goes to bed, either that night or several nights later, we don't know exactly when, then there, he has a dream, and the angel of the Lord appears to him and gives him an urgent command, get up. And, and all of the language here is urgent. Okay, get up and then take. The take is a command. Right, get up essentially right away. Get up now. Wake out of your sleep. Take the child and his mother. Flee to Egypt of all places. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is coming to search for the child, and he's going to destroy him. So there's this urgency presented. You have to get up. Why? Because there is someone who is trying to kill the child. This is prophecy by the angel. The angel is prophesying what Herod is about to do. It hasn't happened yet, but Herod is plotting, and we know that this is in his heart because this is what the angel says. He's been waiting. It seems that he wanted the Magi to come back, and then they would locate for him the house, the individual child, and he could go and maybe quietly kill that child. Well, that hasn't been the case. So now Herod is going to come anyway. This is what the angel predicts. And he tells Joseph to flee to Egypt. Take the child and his mother, take your family, and flee to Egypt. Now, there are times in Old Testament history in particular where going to Egypt was not a good thing. All right? Abraham goes down there, he's supposed to stay, and he goes, and several other characters in the Old Testament go to Egypt, and they shouldn't. But we remember Egypt 
most for when Jacob and his family go down. Joseph goes first, and then he brings his family down, and it really is in Egypt where it's kind of the womb out of which Israel is birthed. They go from 75 to 2 million strong, as nearly as we can determine, after 400 years there. So really, it it becomes, in the Bible, a picture, and particularly in our text here, of a place of safety, asylum for a period of time. And also then, that place turns difficult and becomes a place from which there is deliverance. All that's going to factor into our text. So he tells him to go, tells Joseph to take his family to Egypt. Now, during this period of time, during first a time of Greek rule, and then remember Egypt would have been under the control of the Romans at this time, there were many Jews in, in, in Egypt, and particularly in the city of Alexandria. In fact, uh, the the Jewish philosopher and historian Philo reports that in in Alexandria in AD 40, that is several years after the death of Christ, the city's population included at least one million Jews. So this is a place where Joseph could have gone and most likely found other Jewish families and found support. But again, I want you to remember, Joseph was not a rich man from all the things that we know. And he's just had to relocate. They just had a baby. Apparently, have found a house to live in and possibly he's gotten a job. And now he's told to pick up and go. Wonderful providence of God. What has he been given as he's supposed to pick up and go? How's he going to pay for the journey? How's he going to put gas in the donkey or, or whatever it takes? All right, we just, we just went on a journey down to Texas. We stuck gas in the car. We hop in. No problem for us. We had everything we needed. Joseph has got to pack up his entire family, as we will see at night, right away, and go. Well, he's got the gifts of the Magi. I mean, I would imagine that he used those, the gold, the frankincense, and myrrh. text doesn't tell us that directly, but certainly God is, is providing for them and certainly providing this this insight, this dream, so that he can go. And I do want to mention that for a moment. This isn't the only time that Joseph has had a dream. Remember, he had one when he was about to put aside Mary, when he needed that divine intervention to say, look, don't do that, giving him information he did not know. I'll point out two things about dreams, however. One, dreams in the Bible are for believers, they're always clear. They're always clear. There's no nudging or urging. You get up and go, I wonder what that man, I don't know. This is very clear. It's a dream, remember. There's not an angel actually coming to him. It's a dream that Joseph has. He goes to bed. But it's incredibly clear. Get up! I mean, it couldn't be any more clear. Go to Egypt, not someplace. There's a picture. I think it's like this. This is how people tend to report dreams today. It's not the Spirit of God working in that. He speaks directly. Now, there are times when God spoke in the Old Testament through dreams that weren't clear. Who did he give unclear dreams to? Unbelievers. And he gave them to unbelievers to do what? So that believers would come and interpret them to show his power and that God is in control. So that's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Even those dreams, however, were very clearly not normal dreams. Having the full revelation of God, being given the word, we'll see even some of that now, the need for that new divine intervention or or need for for more words to tell us what to do, as we will see, are are no longer necessary. But certainly necessary now, as in Matthew, to give Joseph the information that he needed and very specific, telling him exactly what it was that he needed to do. And what does he do? He obeys. This is what Joseph always does. As we will see, I think our parallel is the truth of the word of God, that we obey it. It gives us what we need to know. And I think we'll see some specific parallels here. But nonetheless, when Joseph hears this voice of the angel, when he hears this, or when he he takes part in this dream, he says, he got up. So Joseph got up. Remember, he's a righteous man. So this is number two on your outline. He obeys. He got up and he took the child and his mother while it was still night. You get the time frame here? Imagine I've just left. Joseph goes to bed that night or a couple nights later. An angel appears and says, get out of here. Herod's coming. He's going to kill the child. Joseph gets up that night, packs up his family, and heads at night. So we got all that done. Guys, I got about four in the morning to try to take our family down to Texas to leave. We didn't get out. It took us an hour and a half just to pack the van. We're stumbling out out the door. It's later than we expected. He packs his whole family. 
wasn't much. Anything they did have that was extra, they left behind. I didn't have a lot of camels and you know they wouldn't have chariots so he packs his whole family and goes this indicates several things he believed that the, what the angel said was true Herod's coming he believed that it was urgent that this was going to happen and he knew that he had to obey immediately and he did this is how Joseph by the way is always portrayed in scripture he obeys he obeys immediately he obeys fully oh would that that were us I think sometimes we're waiting for the voice of the angel God's, God's given you a voice he's spoken to you clearly he tells you what to do, and particularly when it comes to danger, as we will see. There's many dangers out there, but God has spoken to each one of them in his word, and by his spirit, he illumines that to us so that we too can flee when it is necessary. You don't need to wait for a dream. You have everything you need, and sometimes we wait. Joseph got up immediately because he packed his whole family, okay, his wife and his child, and they headed for Egypt, his obedience was immediate. Now, Egypt was probably at least a week's journey. Any place close enough for him to find a place where he could stay would have been about 150 miles from Bethlehem. You know, it took me, you know, what, 700 miles down to Texas or whatever it is. It took us, you know, 14 hours. Well, he's got to go 150 miles, and it will take him over a week, maybe two or three weeks, depending on the travel. So another side note there in the, in the text mentions this, not only the immediacy, but also how important it was for Joseph to leave because he goes at night, which would have been very dangerous. They didn't have highways and everything was, there was, they didn't have lighted signs or any of that. All right, and all of the evil would have been out at night. Evil reigns at night, all right, apart from the light. Well, so getting up at night was a big deal. It was immediate obedience. It was full obedience. And then we kind of move forward in time, verse 15, right? We're taken from the time when he leaves, which is very immediate and urgent. He goes to Egypt. We're not told about the journey. We're not told any of those specifics because they don't matter for the purpose of the narrative because there's something very specific that the Spirit of God has in mind. It's his going to Egypt and coming out of Egypt that matter. Not how he got there, not what's going on. As we will see, that's the picture we're supposed to see. That's the prophecy that is being fulfilled. So Joseph remains there, it says, and he remained until the death of Herod. Why did he remain? Well, the angel said, remain there until I tell you. So Joseph goes and does exactly that. He remains. Kind of reminds me of Abraham. You know, God said, look, go. Where? I'll, I'll tell you. you know, the angel says, go to Egypt. How long? I'll tell you. Wait there. Right, until I let you know that the situation has changed. So Joseph goes, he waits, and he waits until the death of Herod. Then comes this fascinating statement. This was to fulfill. Now, this is not so fascinating because we've already seen it two times in the book of Matthew already. This was to fulfill. It's speaking of Old Testament prophecies that attest to the reality of Jesus as the Messiah. But we have a little bit of difficulty here. And all three of these, by the way, are very difficult to understand. How, why, how are these prophecies? So I'm going to take some time to do this. Bear with me. Put on your oxygen masks. We're going to go a little bit deep here, all right? This is layers. So if some of this, you're going to be, okay, I get that. Some maybe not. I don't know. But I'm going to take the time to do it because it has to do with biblical interpretation. It has to do with the use of the Old Testament in the New. And this is a vital topic. How do we actually understand these things? So Joseph fulfills, is number four on your outline, he fulfills the prophecy. And, and by the way, note the providence of God and the sovereignty of God. There's a prophecy here that is fulfilled out of Egypt I called my son. We'll talk about that in a minute. But think of all that has happened for this to go on. You've had the evil Herod plotting death for Jesus, for the child. You've got Joseph in his obedience. You've got the angel showing up. As we will see, you have Old Testament prophecies related to all of this. God working all of this using the righteous and the evil, both acting according to their desires. He is using both of those things, plus all of the historical events and the geography to bring about his prophecy. You think God is not in control. 
And that's part of what Matthew's trying to say. God is in control. When he promises something, it happens. When he says it's a Messiah, it is. Because he's attested to by these things that have happened hundreds of years before. They've been promised. So that's what's going on here. Joseph is fulfilling. It says to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Now, again, just look in, in chapter 1. We've already seen this, right? It says chapter 1, verse 22. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Exactly the same kind of quote. He's fulfilling a prophecy. And that prophecy was, behold, the virgin shall be with child, shall bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. That's a prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah 7.14, which we saw had a temporal fulfillment, most likely, but also this final or complete fulfillment in Christ. So we expect something similar when we come to this formula in this verse, but we're thrown for a bit of a loop because let's again look at it. What Matthew quotes is half of Hosea 11.1, right? The whole verse states this, when Israel was a youth, I loved him and out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, this is fascinating because Matthew only quotes the second half and he attributes it to whom? Jesus. And yet Hosea attributes it, or he says, out of Egypt, I called my son, relates to whom? Israel. It's like, what's going on here? Is this a prophecy? Is it not? What kind of prediction is this? Is, is, you know, is Matthew confusing Jesus with Israel? Another question might be, well, if Israel is really typified, if Jesus typifies Israel, then is everything about Israel to be fulfilled in Jesus? How do we see all of this? We can't get at all of that this morning. All right, I'm just going to kind of try to simplify it as best I can to give you the, the best understanding, I think, of how Matthew is using this quote. So, so the question you might ask when coming to this is, is this actually a specific prophecy about the Messiah? And how would those in the Old Testament have known this? Because in the Old Testament, they're saying, well, it's about Israel. And really, it's about something that has already happened by the time Hosea writes. Just looking in back to the past. Well, I will answer it this way. Yes, this is a prophecy about Christ. I think the fulfillment formula is clear. Right? So this is a prophecy about Christ in the Old Testament, but the Old Testament prophets would not necessarily, notice that's a key word, would not necessarily have known that this was a prophecy. Well, John MacArthur says this. Though Hosea was not knowingly predicting that the Messiah was, would also one day be brought out of Egypt, Matthew shows that Jesus' return from Egypt was pictured by Israel's calling from the same country many centuries earlier. The Exodus, therefore, was a type of Jesus' return from Egypt with Joseph and Mary. As God had once brought the people of Israel out of Egypt to be his chosen nation, he has now brought out his greater son to be the Messiah. Now, without dwelling on it this morning, because we'll kind of layer this all throughout Matthew, we will see that there is a sense in which Jesus is the greater son. Israel was considered God's son. He says that in Hosea. You, out of Egypt, I called my son. Is Israel my son? And Jesus, as we will see portrayed by Matthew and even others, really fulfills or, or lives up to the, the sonship that Israel never did. That is, he fulfills everything or he, he accomplishes all that Israel was supposed to, to be a light to the nations to bring about salvation, as it were. Well, Jesus accomplishes this perfectly. So there is a sense in which he is that perfect son. He is the fulfillment of what Israel was supposed to be. And that seems to be how this prophecy is playing out here, right? That which is predicted about Israel in this case, or what happened to Israel coming out of Egypt, then is fulfilled in the life of Christ as it demonstrates his completion of what Israel was supposed to do. And MacArthur calls that a typological fulfillment of prophecy, and perhaps that's the best way to put it. It's not a stated prophecy, Jesus will or the Messiah will come out of Egypt, but Israel coming out of Egypt in this case is a type of what Jesus did, 
right? Now, you might remember that I talked about in Isaiah what I, I called a complete fulfillment of the prophecy, not necessarily a hidden meaning or a fuller meaning, but the complete fulfillment. So in Isaiah, it begins, there's a, there's a part of that prophecy that is done, it's fulfilled in Christ. I would see the same thing here. What happened with Israel is part of that prophetic discussion, and then what happens with Christ really finishes it out. And, and D.A. Carson says this, we may therefore legitimately speak of a fuller meaning, I would call it a complete fulfillment, right, than any one text provides. That is, the text in Hosea doesn't provide that final or complete fulfillment. Fulfillment, But the appeal should, not, should be made not on the basis of some hidden divine knowledge, that is, nothing that anyone could have had any knowledge of, but on a pattern of revelation up to that time, a pattern not yet adequately discerned in the Old Testament, more clearly discerned in the New through the inspiration of the Spirit of God and the looking back on the patterns of Israel. The new revelation may therefore be truly new, yet at the same time capable of being checked against the old. Now, what I mean by that is, is this. Matthew was already being accused of, of presenting this is not the real Messiah. And, and, and even in presenting a text like this, you can't just go and cherry pick any text from the Old Testament and say, well, that must be about Jesus. Grab it, stick it into the New and say, see, it's Christ. Because the people around him were reading the Bible and they were reading the Old Testament and they knew it very well. So he can't just grab anything. He has to have a reason for it. In this case, he does. That is the context even of Hosea about Israel, the son being called out. Well, Jesus is the son. So he can pick specific fulfillments that are typological in this way. Not any fulfillment, not anything in the Old Testament, but specific ones. And so he does. So it's not a random choosing of phrases. He's not picking Old Testament phrases, passing them off as prophecy to support his claim of Jesus as the Messiah. And this is where we need to be careful because there is kind of an, an over or a misunderstanding of this typological prophecy or Jesus being the fulfillment of Israel that really takes Christ and then reads the whole Old Testament through the lens that Everything Israel did is typified in Christ. It's not warranted from our text. It's not warranted as an overall hermeneutic, right? We understand Jesus as fulfilling many things that Israel was supposed to do, but not everything or everything they did. And we may not read every event in the Old Testament to try to find the hidden Christological meaning. Now, Jesus, again, I would, I would say certainly does in some ways prefigure the true Israel, but this does not mean that in Christ all promises to national Israel are fulfilled. That is, there's nothing remaining for national Israel because Jesus prefigured that. Right? There's nothing that states that in, in Old or New Testament. But we would say that Christ completely and fully accomplished what Israel could not. In fact, Christ being the true son paves the way for all the Old Testament promises to God's ethnic son Israel to be fulfilled. The fact that he is really the completed son paves the way for the ethnic son, that is, the nation of Israel, to receive all of the benefits of the fulfillment that are promised for. It doesn't, one does not contradict the other. One does not take the place of the other. So you might be asking, how do we know then which prophecies or which things we can look at in the Old Testament and see as types of Christ? I hope you're asking that question. You ought to be. Well, I have an answer for you, and it comes in an extended quote. So hang on, because the quote says it better than I can. All right, so hang on, stay with me. All right, keep those oxygen masks on. We need them because we're going deep down. All right, here's MacArthur again. It says a type is a nonverbal prediction. That's what he's speaking of it as. An Old Testament person or event that illustrates some aspect of the person and work of the Lord Jesus in the future, but does not specifically describe it as we have in Hosea. The writer has no way to see this future antitype. Although I would say that Hosea's understanding of what was happening with Israel, is under, as he goes on to talk about that Israel, what happened to Israel was ultimately God says, you're doing this to me and I will redeem you. So it wouldn't be inconceivable that even Hosea would not have some glimmer of what the son of God, that that was the Messiah and that Israel represented that. 
Anyway, that's an aside. <laughs> All right, so Hosea may even have known at least some of it. But God's nonverbal predictions are true and vivid as his verbal ones. But we cannot legitimately call a person or event a true Old Testament type, except as the Bible itself tells us of it. The only certain New Testament types are those given us as such in the New Testament. No type is in itself visibly a type. Such reality awaits the New Testament identification. When the New Testament uses something in the Old Testament to prefigure something that has occurred or will occur later, we can safely refer to, to that Old Testament reference as a type. If you ignore such limits, in the free, you have freedom then to allegorize, to spiritualize, and to typify the Old Testament by whimsy or, or simply by, by your own understanding. Because types are veiled revelation, divine testimony to their identity must be given by the Holy Spirit in the New Testament text. Therefore, because of the specific association that Matthew gives here, we know that the exodus of Israel from Egypt is a type of Jesus' return from Egypt as a young child. Now, however much of that you got, let me just, when I was going through, I'll give you an illustration. When I was going through the book of Ruth, now, because some of you are saying, now, wait a minute, can't we use things in the Old Testament to apply to things that Christ did? We can. But is not, it is not a specific type. That is a prophetic fulfillment. You might remember the person Boaz, right? The, the character of Boaz. In Ruth, he does what? He's a kinsman redeemer. And then many would say, look, see, Boaz is a type of Christ. He's prophetically fulfilled in Christ. And I would say, the Bible doesn't tell us that. It doesn't say that Boaz is that. He, and so there's many applications that I made from Boaz and his redeeming. And, and we could look at Christ and see some of the ways that that was similar. But I was very careful to say, that we do not know Boaz as a type, we know that because Boaz was Christ-like and that he lived a holy life, accomplishing what he was supposed to according to the law he was given, then that way he represents Christ, but not some kind of specific prophetic fulfillment. I hope that helps because we can make wonderful applications from the Old Testament without calling them prophetic types and really getting confused then oftentimes as to what God actually predicted, things that are undone or done on the basis of what is sometimes called a Christological hermeneutic, which sounds wonderful, but it's not warranted. That is everything in the Old Testament viewed essentially solely through the work of Christ, and that's how it's interpreted. Now, that's why, by the way, I would say we have a literal, grammatical, historical, contextual hermeneutic. It is the contextual part that enables us through, through the literary nature, through the grammar and the history to then take Old and New Testaments in context and understand from the New things that we might not have understood from the Old because it's revealed to us in the New under inspiration. Okay, now this will come in layers, all right? So more of this, and actually these next two prophecies are a little difficult themselves, so we'll talk more of it, but I hope that helps or begins your journey to start understanding how the Old Testament is used in the New. Now, uh, by way of application before we move on, so we don't get lost in all of this, but this idea of, of then the warning, of the fact that Joseph immediately obeys, and of the very real threat in God's sovereign plan, although Jesus was not to die at this time, it's a very real threat, and Joseph needed to leave. Let's understand that in God's sovereign purposes, when he says leave, you better leave, because this is what he requires of you to do. We don't say, God is sovereign, he'll work it out. He'll somehow protect Jesus. He told you to leave, you leave. Well, how does that apply to you? We are threatened with very real spiritual dangers revealed to us by the word of God, are we not? We are also given the commands and resources we need to win the battle against those dangers, and we are required to take hold of them. We don't say, well, God is sovereign. He'll protect me from sin. He tells you what to do. He tells you what to read. He tells you where to be, and you are to take hold of those things. Speaking just simply of the enemy of your soul, 
who was the one prowling like a roaring lion to take out Christ at the very beginning. See, it wasn't so much that he wanted Christ to die, right, or not to die. He, he wanted him to die or do anything different than dying at the right time and for the right reason. So he tries to kill him here. Later on, he tries to tempt him into worshiping him, not killing him there, but worship, circumventing the cross in any way, either dying early or worshiping early or committing some sin that would keep him or make him ineligible to go to the cross. That was Satan's entire goal. Well, here, destroy him quick. Destroy him early. That will take out the plan of God. Well, the enemy of your soul prowls about. First Peter 5 8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. You have the word of God. You have the spirit of God who illumines this word to you. You have all you need for life and godliness to avoid the sin that the evil one would seek to bring. You don't need to wait for anything else, further revelation, dreams, anything. What you need is to obey the word of God in the power of the spirit as you understand it because it is supernaturally illumined to you by the spirit. You cannot know what this means to obey it properly without the supernatural work of the spirit of God. It's impossible. But it is a work then that you seek to do in his power and to accomplish by obeying what he has said. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the SOLA and Essentials Conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online, and we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King. And the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.